Good morning and welcome to the Dodds Monitoring Podcast. Each week, our team of Dodds policy experts will be bringing you these short 15 to 20 minute audio briefings on a range of subjects and sectors, helping you to understand the policy behind the politics. This week, England took its first step out of lockdown as outdoor pubs and outdoor hospitality, as well as indoor exercise venues, reopened. As pub goers across the country have braved the conditions to take their first step of freedom for almost four months, and salons and barbers have seen their first customers in just as long, the government has come under intense scrutiny for its own close shave with lobbying rules around the influence and access of David Cameron and Lex Greensill. Despite yesterday's vote against a committee inquiry into the investigation of government lobbying, the Treasury Committee has announced its own inquiry focusing on the regulatory lessons from the failure of Greensill Capital and the appropriateness of HM Treasury's response to lobbying. We will await to see whether the former Prime Minister will be called to give evidence to that inquiry. In recent weeks, though, there has been a growing debate around sexual assault in schools and the reaction of leaders both in private schools and state schools. Also, just last week, the Women and Equalities Committee released a timely report on their inquiry looking into body image, focusing on young people. Also, over the last couple of weeks, concerns have been raised about the return of universities and when students can return to in-person lectures, with an announcement just this week about reopening of campuses. I'm Dean Sabri, and joining me to discuss those issues are DOS monitoring experts Tom Hunter and Alex Ming. Good morning, both. So, Tom, as I just mentioned, there was a government announcement earlier this week about campuses reopening. What does this mean for university students and how was the sector responded? Hi Dean, Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, yeah, this issue has been rumbling on for a couple of weeks now really. Uh, Many university leaders have been led to believe that campuses might open up with the rest of the country as we headed into step two of the roadmap, so starting this week. But uh, unlocking moved on without any mention of higher education. Up until now, most university students haven't been permitted to attend in-person learning since Christmas, so only a handful of practical-based and and key worker courses were able to actually return to campus at the start of 2021. But then on Tuesday, the government announced that campuses could reopen no earlier than 17th of May if the circumstances allowed it as part of step three of the roadmap. So in a written statement, Universities Minister Michelle Donnellan added that students and providers would be given a week's notice, as promised, um, and said that on returning, students will have to take three supervised on-site tests. And then after that, there'll be home tests available for them to test twice weekly. But as well as announcing the return to campus, the department said it'd be allocating an additional 15 million pounds for financial hardship. So that's on top of the 70 million they've already distributed in the last financial year. Uh, Both students and university leaders have been calling for campuses to reopen again, along with the rest of the country. But they were met with mostly silence from the government until now. Universities UK, um, less than a week ago, wrote to the Prime Minister um, and again wrote a joint letter uh, with Student Minds and NUS trying to persuade him to allow students to return. Similar calls came from individual vice-chancellors and from education unions such as the UCU. Uh, Part of the government's response has been to do with the amount of students that aren't yet on campus. So today, during a debate in the Commons, Michelle Donnellan said that 23% of students are estimated to not be back on campus yet. So that's about half a million students who she says will have to travel and form new households, therefore increasing the risk of transmission. But add to that as well that recent research from the think tank HEPI shows that 
that with the amount of students that are currently living in term time accommodation um, still don't have access to essential facilities for their course or receive any in-person teaching. Uh, the Lib Dem Education spokesperson, Daisy Cooper, had an urgent question today in the comments and in that she pointed out that many students will actually have finished or will be about to finish their courses shortly after the 17th of May return date. Uh, this was a, a, a major point that, that the Labour had to make as well around this. Um, they also made the point that financial hardship uh, should be increased in line with what the APPG for students have said and they're calling for financial hardship funding to be increased to around £700 million. Uh, the Shadow Universities Minister Matt Weston said that support for HE students in England is lowest across all four nations but the government have said that their approach is more targeted than their devolved counterparts and the money isn't intended for every student. Ultimately, the government say they're going for a cautious approach because the last thing that they want is for students to have to self-isolate repeatedly, um, particularly around the impact that will have on their well-being. But across the board, education leaders are really bitterly disappointed with this week's announcement. Thanks, Tom. That's really interesting. It's interesting to see how it play out about the hardship fund and how the return of students plays out when we talk about uh, the mass migration of students, which was made a lot about and previous lockdowns and if that has any knock-on effect on the government's roadmap. Now schools have also been in the news recently with the launch of a review into sexual abuse held by the government. Could you tell us why, what and why this is happening? Yeah of course so this uh, this began with a website called Everyone's Invited uh, where students could post anonymous testimonials of their experiences of misogyny, harassment, abuse and uh, sexual assault. So the website has been going for a while but it really recently started gathering attention and now has around 11,500 testimonies on the platform which is a huge amount and, and a worrying amount. The, the, these allegations range, for, you know, range from uh, name-calling, heckling to actual physical contact and assault. So on the 31st of March, after a week or so of pressure from, from campaigners and from parents and from students, the government launched a review into sexual abuse in schools. So the review is going to be conducted by Ofsted and the Independent Schools Inspectorate because obviously Ofsted don't cover independent private schools. So they're going to work with representatives from across social care, police, victim support groups, as well as school and college leaders and the Independent Schools Council. On top of announcing the review, they announced that the NSPCC, the children's charity, will be setting up a dedicated helpline number for young people who've experienced any of these issues. The, the launch of the review and the helpline have, have mostly been publicly welcomed by, of course, students and parents and some of the education unions, although it's worth noting that some haven't put out any kind of press release on this yet either. But one that did was the National Association of Head Teachers, NAT, and they said there's clearly an urgent need to ask ourselves what more we can all do to prevent sexual harassment and violence now and in the future. And then they added to that that there's no doubt that schools can and should play a key role in this work, but this is a problem that reaches far beyond the school gates. So Ofsted have since announced their terms of reference for the review, and it says that they're going to visit a sample of schools and colleges where cases have been highlighted, but it will not be reporting on individual schools or cases. However, 
problems that they highlight may prompt more full inspections. So the focus of this review is going to be on serious and widespread failures, particularly around safeguarding arrangements. The key focus is policies and processes, not just in dealing with cases when they're brought to the school's attention, but also in the overall education of young people, particularly young boys, through things such as relationship, sex and health education. Crucially, they'll also be looking at any patterns in terms of range, nature, location, as well as the extent of school's knowledge to build an overall picture of just how widespread this problem is and how they can tackle it. Amanda Spielman said uh, to media recently, she's the chief inspector of Ofsted, she said the review would consider how schools can support and encourage appropriate behaviour from the lessons in the classroom to the culture in the corridors. They're due to report back in May, so we await to hear the results of that review. Thank you, Tom. It sounds like one we should definitely be keeping our eye on over the coming months and uh, and weeks ahead. So, Alex, if I come to you, um, on Friday, the Women in Equality Select Committee published a report for their inquiry looking into body image. It has come at a timely moment with eating disorder referrals massively increasing amongst young people during the pandemic. I just wanted to know if you could tell me a bit more about the report and how young people have been struggling to access the services. Hi, Dean. Um, thanks for having me on the podcast. So, yes, as you said, the Women in Equality Select Committee published their report last Friday. It's a really significant document which covers a huge range of areas, so I'll try to stay on track and we'll probably need to go into some detail about access to services um, before touching on some of the report's other recommendations which relate to things like the government's obesity strategy. Before that, I guess when talking about the report and how it affects young people, it's necessary to set up some of the context here. So, as you mentioned, eating disorder referrals have drastically increased during the pandemic, both for children and for adults. So looking at under 18s, we've seen something like a 46% increase in referrals to specialist services. And there's also been a 129% increase in the number of children and young people waiting for routine treatment. These figures are drastic and they've certainly added a sense of urgency to the report's publication. However, these issues, you know, around services have go really beyond the last year. Since 2016-17, there had already been a 50% increase in children accessing eating disorder services. And there's been some increased funding to the NHS, but it's been pretty woefully inadequate. So I guess this brings me on to the issue around how children and young people have actually been able to access services. And I think there's a combination of things here which are related. And the first is to do with resources. And the second is to do with how eating disorders have more traditionally been understood and treated in the NHS. So as I've said, the services at present are very much underfunded and there's been this massive backlog growing for care. And as with anything, this means that for people trying to access NHS services, the people who are being prioritised are those who are most at risk. And in the case of eating disorders, which we know to be the mental health illness with the highest mortality rate, this means that an overburdened service will inevitably end up prioritising the sufferers who are the most underweight. And because of this, the NHS prioritises BMI as a metric to determine whether a person really needs care. So, you know, what, one of the most important recommendations made by the Select Committee is for the health system in general to move away from using BMI as a measure for an individual's healthy weight. For one thing, I mean, BMI is not always a helpful unit because it's thought to have been developed based on the bodies of white male Europeans. Women, people who are mixed race, people from minority ethnic backgrounds tend to have a higher healthy BMI, which means that in these kind of assessments, you'll have some people who are a healthy weight and they can be classified as being overweight by the metric or people who are un 
underweight for how they should be can be classified as having a healthy BMI. And that's only one aspect of why it's really problematic as a means for assessing eating disorders. Because I mean, when people typically think of eating disorders, they often think about people who are very underweight, but in reality, anorexia nervosa only makes up about 10% of cases and there are myriads of other eating disorders which receive way less attention, things like binge eating disorder or orthorexia. And, you know, these are still really life damaging, life impacting illnesses that need treatment and care. And even when you end up coming to things like anorexia and bulimia, not all sufferers will be underweight. So when it comes to children, young people with eating disorders, because of how BMI is used to determine treatment, they, a lot of children and young people are routinely being, routinely being turned away from care because they're being told that they aren't ill enough. And I mean, it's mad. We don't meet a measure or treat other mental health issues in this way. You know, eating disorders are psychiatric illnesses, but at present, the system is almost entirely reliant on a physiological assessment to determine who's ill enough. We don't do it with other mental health problems, you know, so a person who is presenting with depression would not be asked for evidence of self-harm when we're determining treatment. But this is effectively what is happening with eating disorders. And so when young people and children who are really in a desperate state and being told to, that they can't receive treatment, it's not only damaging in the fact that they don't get the treatment, it can also make a person actively worse because they're told they're not small enough, which feeds into disordered behaviours around food. I know when speaking about eating disorders and perceptions around them, I think an interesting point here again around how young people have been able to access services and resources, it's, I think there's this sense that people have, or traditionally, that they are an illness that only really affects younger people. And there's this idea that with that, it's something that people will eventually grow out of, you know, eating disorders only impact teenage girls and to give it a few years and it might pass. But perversely, if eating disorders are only seen as affecting young people, there's not going to be enough resource put into it. And I mean, on the case of resources, when the um, select committee published the report, one of the main things they have asked for is for there to be more research into funding. So general mental health funding for different illnesses, the average spend it gets is £9 per person. For eating disorders, the spend is 96 pence per person at present. So, you know, the committee have asked that this increases because they're really complex mental health problems that aren't understood. And as we have said and is known, they also have the highest mortality rate. So that discrepancy in spending is really, really troubling for uh, mental health services. So I'll wind down, though, a bit now on the services side of it. And touch on some of the other parts the report expressly calls to in relation to younger people. So one of the things that the report calls for is for there to be a massive gear change in how the government actually approaches healthy weight. So for young people, it's asked that they review the National Child Measurement Programme in schools as it is thought to, you know, initiate negative body image ideas at a young age and also compulsive thoughts around weight. So with this and, you know, what we've mentioned, BMI, it's not helpful and it's actually been seen to be more damaging. And the report's also asked that the new RSHE curriculum in schools um, actually pays attention to issues around this, like body dissatisfaction, social media, so that there's better awareness of these issues so that people have more awareness. And I think linking with that, the final thing which will perhaps be most interesting to see the market change is how damning the report is of the government's current obesity strategy. 
And, you know, this is one of Boris Johnson's big public health policies. So time will tell how much actually has an impact. But the committee are asking that the whole strategy is just completely re-looked at and re-examined for any of the negative consequences it could have. And it's asking for an immediate scrap on plans to have calorie labels on foods, restaurants, cafes, takeaways um, placed on there because they've just said that, you know, this kind of thing isn't really shown to be very helpful for people trying to lose weight. However, it is, you know, seen as being something that is really damaging to people who might have eating disorders or be prone to developing disordered eating behaviours. So I think, you know, linking all of this up, the obesity strategy and also in terms of accessing services, the, right now, as the report points to, we have a system where you have a lot of children and young people who are being turned away from services because they're being told they're not ill enough. And then they are also being told by, you know, all walks of life, including by the government, that health equals losing weight, eating more vegetables, doing more exercise and all of this just rolls together to be a very toxic atmosphere and in a time like the last year when people have been very much left to their own devices i think it's one of the reasons why we've just seen these spikes in cases so yes it's if the report ends up being listened to it could have a really big impact on how people are able to access services and maybe changing some of the conversation around it so hopefully we'll see some of that and yeah particularly on the government's obesity strategy Thank you, Alex. That's a really thorough deep dive into the report. I mean, on, on initial reading, I found it, it proposed a lot of questions for myself. So thank you for answering, answering a lot of those. Um, and it will be interesting to see if the government does take a lot of it into account. Um, thank you both for exploring those policy issues that are affecting young people at the moment. And I think at the moment, it's like a really, as I said, a really timely time, um, timely opportunity, in fact, to, to speak about these issues that are affecting young people. But before I let you both go, I would like to get an idea, a little picture of what you guys have planned to celebrate the um, first steps on the government's roadmap out of lockdown. I myself have got a haircut book tomorrow, but Tom, what, are, what have you got to look forward to? I will be going to the pub this evening with my housemates, and that's been booked in the calendar for about three weeks now. <laughs> I'm so excited for you. Uh, Alex, what, what have you got booked in? Yeah, I think all fairly similar. Went to the pub last night, so I will probably do something similar this weekend. But yeah, nice to finally have a bit of freedom. You've both given me a smile on my face. So um, it, it sounds so good for people to go out and enjoying um, a bit of sunshine, hopefully, over the weekend. Um, thank you both very much for joining me today. And if you're not already a Dodds Monitoring client and you think you or your business could benefit from getting up-to-date, tailored and cutting-edge political intelligence, then you can request a free trial by emailing customer.service at dodgegroup.com or calling us on 0207 593 5500. Thank you for listening.